Welcome, my friends, to the Generations broadcast. It was the end of an era. That's right. It is the end of an era. Queen Elizabeth has died. September 8th, Thursday of this week. She was 96 years of age. Her reign extended for almost 70 years. And I want to advocate the position that Queen Elizabeth was a dispensation of God's mercy upon the Western world. Queen Elizabeth was a blessing to the world in so many ways. Adam McManus, our co-host from theworldview.com, is with me on this edition. Adam, Elizabeth was a blessing to the Western world, and I would say she is the end of Western civilization. There's no one like her alive today. Ronald Reagan was something of a blessing to the Western world. And Queen Elizabeth would be something of the conservatism of a previous generation still blessing the West for some 70 years. She reigned 70 years in Buckingham Palace. Amazing. And I I would say she was a blessing, not just to England and the provinces, but also to the United States and the whole world as well. You agree? When you take into account how the British, in terms of their very personality, tend to be more reserved in terms of just a a national personality, if you will. When she spoke of Jesus Christ, she was unapologetic. She was unashamed. No, it wasn't a Billy Graham, Franklin Graham, Ray Comfort, Kevin Swanson style of presentation. But then again, she was a genteel lady. She was the queen. She was English. In light of all of those kind of natural cultural inhibitions, she was a great advocate for Jesus. For example, in 2014, she described Jesus as her inspiration and as an anchor in her life. She said, quote, Jesus Christ lived obscurely for most of his life and never traveled far. He was maligned and rejected by many, though he had done no wrong. So pointing to his sinlessness, which is so important in these days of George Barna studies of evangelical Christians in America who think that Jesus might have sinned. The queen continues, and yet billions of people now follow his teaching and find in him the guiding light for their lives. I am one of them because Christ's example helps me see the value of doing small things with great love. Even just recently during the COVID pandemic, April of 2020, she affirmed the need to celebrate the resurrection of Christ, saying, indeed, we need Easter as much as ever. The discovery of the risen Christ on the first Easter day gave his followers new hope and fresh purpose, and we can all take heart from this. I was always greatly encouraged by her national addresses, especially her Christmas ones. She acknowledged Jesus Christ as her Savior and the forgiveness of sins that he provides, and she she did that on multiple occasions. And she she was something of the defender of the faith, yes, and also the maintenance of a Christian culture and a Christian civilization, even to the point of mentioning Pilgrim's Progress, which, as you know, is John Bunyan's classic in which he presents a, a, a thoroughly biblical approach to the faith still received as such by Christians all around the world. And she would refer to that, I think this was in the 1950s, when she gave this particular Christmas address. I believe that together 
we can set an example to the world which will encourage upright people everywhere. I would like to read you a few lines from Pilgrim's Progress because I'm sure we can say with Mr. Valiant for truth these words, my marks and scars I carry with me to be a witness for me that I have fought his battles who now will be my rewarder. So, I believe... So there it is. There's an example of... Uh of Queen Elizabeth's uh, respect for uh, Christian culture, and I think she does believe the things that she says she believes. You agree with that, Adam? I do. I do. As she even said in 2004's Christmas message, for me as a Christian, one of the most important of the teachings is contained in the parable of the Good Samaritan. When Jesus answers the question, who is my neighbor? It's a timeless story of a victim of a mugging who was ignored by his own countrymen, but helped by a foreigner and a despised foreigner at that. The implication drawn by Jesus is clear, says Queen Elizabeth II. Everyone is our neighbor, no matter what race, creed, or color. The need to look after a fellow human being is far more important than any cultural or religious differences. So time and time again, she comes through clearly as a believer. And I know you've got another quote about her sense of accountability before God. Yeah, and I like this quote because... You know, when it comes to your civil magistrates, you're still very interested in the fear of God as the beginning of wisdom, as Second uh, Samuel 23 puts it, uh, that any who rule among the children of men must fear God and do that which is just. And it comes from the Scripture. So this is really the bottom line, basic qualification for any magistrate. And I think you get a, a feel for that in this particular quote. From Queen Elizabeth, I think this came about uh, year 2000, if I'm not mistaken. To many of us, our beliefs are of fundamental importance. For me, the teachings of Christ and my own personal accountability before God provide a framework in which I try to lead my life. I, like so many of you, have drawn great comfort in difficult times from Christ's words and example. Hold fast that which is good. Render to no man evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted, support the weak, help the afflicted, honor all men. If there was a Christian heritage that still needs to be celebrated, appreciated uh, by those of us in the 21st century, as as we see the fall of Western civilization, uh, certainly uh, Queen Elizabeth embodied that in these particular quotes, most of which occurred in her Christmas address. But, my friends, Elizabeth has passed on. Elizabeth is the end of Western civilization, the last of the conservatives, the end of 1,200 years of Christian influence in the macro institutions of the world, certainly the Western world. And the, that particular millennium is over. I'm not saying the millennium is over, but that millennium is over. That Christian millennium of the last 1,200 years in the Western world that had so much effect on India, China, South America, Africa, etc., uh, that's over. Charles is post-Christian. Trump post-Christian, Macron, post-Christian, Trudeau, post-Christian, Pedro Sanchez of Spain is uh, post-Christian. So these are the post-Christian years of the Western world. But Elizabeth is something of the representation of the last of uh, Christian influence in the Western world over 1,200 years, beginning with Athelstan, the first king of England, and I'm going to say it was roughly 890 AD, meaning that this is the end of 1,200 years of Christian kings and queens, some of which were better than others. But, uh, but you would look 
far and wide to find an atheist or a polytheist, much like what you find with uh, Charles, who will be referred to henceforth as Charles III. Elizabeth, the end of common grace for the Western world, that's England, Canada, and Australia, the economic, social, moral, geopolitical consequences of Elizabeth's passing. Wow. Uh, It's going to be hard to imagine what will happen now. But we want to be thankful for God's mercy upon the world, God's mercy upon the Western world, thinking about how he has extended the rule of the last Queen of England over a period of, what, 70 years of influence. Uh, Carl Truman's comments are apropos here. Now, Truman is well-known. He's been writing some books on the slow but steady decline of Western civilization himself. Truman is an elder in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, a fairly conservative, Reformed Christian writer of the present day. I believe he is a university professor at Grove City College, if I'm not mistaken. But Carl Truman wrote this in reference to the passing of Queen Elizabeth. Listen to Carl Truman's words. A friend who once had a privilege of being a royal chaplain and spending a weekend at Balmoral Castle confirmed that the conversations he had with the Queen revealed her to be a thoughtful and devout Christian. As a humble Christian, she took her earthly vocation seriously, placing the needs of the office and of the people she ruled before her own. Unlike most heads of state today, she was a person to whom one could point and say to one's children and grandchildren, when you grow up, you want to be like her. Her reign was marked with a deep sense of the dignity of her office. She never used profane language. She never sneered at her critics. And my understanding is that she kneeled at her bed each evening to pray before she went to bed. That was a common practice for the Queen of England. Well, my friends, significant things have happened with the passing of Queen Elizabeth. She was a restraint to the godlessness and gross immorality, a restraint that America did not enjoy to that extent, but it did provide something of an external morality to England and the British territories. Even the Bahamas, I've been there a number of times to to minister there, to do conferences and such, but even the Bahamas is a pleasant place to be, as I see it, largely because of the influence of the monarchy, the conservatism of Queen Elizabeth over the generations. But now that restraint is gone, the effects on humanity will be tragic over all the world. But uh, we're thankful for God's mercy extended these 70 years. Be back with more in just a moment on the Generations broadcast. What happens when a culture that was established and guided by biblical principles abandons the faith and seeks to live by its own wisdom? In his latest groundbreaking work, Epic, The Rise and Fall of the West, Kevin Swanson unfolds the dramatic history of Western civilization, highlighting the phenomenal impact that Jesus Christ and his people have had upon the thought, culture, and institutions of the Christian West as well as tracing the slow but devastating decline of Western civilization and the key factors that have led to our spectacular fall over the centuries. A sobering narrative of gospel hope, this book urges its reader to greater fervency in the work of discipleship and the development of an international vision for the church. This is truly a must-read for any Christian seeking to understand the times and seasons in which we live You can claim your hardcover copy of Epic, The Rise and Fall of the West 
by visiting generations.org slash store today. That's generations.org slash store. Eleven hundred years, my friends, eleven hundred years of Christian influence in the Western world is over. And this is one more symbolic indication of a transition from a Christian world to a post-Christian world with the passing of Elizabeth II, 1,100 years since Alfred's grandson pulled together the English Isles. Athelstan reigned from 927 to 939. He pulled together the English Isles. He was the first king of England. Not so Alfred, but Athelstan, yes, first king of England, 927 AD. That makes for 1,100 years. Athelstan, Alfred, others coded Christian biblical law for the English Isles that extended into the reign of Queen Elizabeth and, of course, the influence of Christian law in North America and elsewhere around the world, thanks to 1,100 years of biblical Christian rulers, some better than others, and yet, overall, a Christian common denominator that seemed to dominate for a millennium, maybe not the millennium, but a millennium, and that, my friends, is one of the most significant events in all of human history, the influence of Jesus Christ upon nations, upon continents, upon the whole world, let's face it. England, America, other nations have had tremendous influence on the entire world, including Queen Elizabeth, and it has been a mercy, it has been a grace, it has been common grace upon the world. So we're thankful for Queen Elizabeth, aren't we? Why do you believe it's come to an end now with the reign of King Charles III, her son? Well, let's talk about him. Let's talk about him. Charles has uh, publicly stated on various occasions he does not want to be the defender of the faith. It's the definite article he has trouble with. (laughs) He doesn't want the faith. He says, I will be the defender of faith, but not the defender of the faith. And, And he's pretty firm on that issue. He wants to be the defender of the faith of Muslims, Wiccans, Hindus, Buddhists, atheists, humanists, people believe in man, not God. He wants to be the defender of anybody who believes in anything. (laughs) You know, know, now that's kind of crazy when you realize that. He wants to be the defender of faith. That is That is, there is no right, there is no wrong. We live in a completely relativistic age, and he is the polytheist that believes there are many ways to think about everything, and uh, they're all to be defended. He wants to be the defender of faith, not the faith. But does he not attend a Church of England on a regular basis himself? I think we've pretty much come to the conclusion that attending a church doesn't make you a believer. Right. <laughs> and at least from what we can tell— I'm with what, you on that. You know, his public confessions do not indicate any belief in God, any acceptance of Jesus Christ. And he apparently wants to put all face on the same level as as where he is, at least to this point. Maybe he's been converted in the last two years. I don't know. He'd be happy with one of those coexist bumper stickers on the back exactly. with all of the different yeah. symbols of the religion as if they're all equal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, that's where he would be. Now, at his coronation, as his mother did in her coronation, 1953, Charles will be asked to affirm these two questions from the Archbishop of Canterbury. Will you, in your power, cause law and justice in mercy 
to be executed in all your judgments. And here it is. Will you to the utmost of your power maintain the laws of God and the true profession of the gospel? Now, not many evangelicals are going to say yes to that oath. You know, the laws of God, you're talking about standing up for the laws of God as encoded in Old and New Testaments of the word of God itself. <laughs> You've got to be kidding me. Um, so, I, you know, I think there, there would be some reticence on the part of, of even some evangelicals to, uh, to stand up for the laws of God. But that's included in the coronation vows that Charles is to take within the next couple of months. My understanding is it's not going to happen immediately, but probably within months. I would be intrigued to see if there isn't some legislative initiative afoot between now and then to change the questions. I think that would be unlikely because it would call attention to them. I think King Charles III would be more likely to say yes to both questions, but not even mean them from his heart. Well, the unraveling of Western civilization and the morality of the nations, I think, has been pretty well exemplified by the monarchy itself uh, since the 1930s. Remember that uh, the Western world has been very much influenced by the English monarchy for all of these years, and much of the English monarchy has had something of a good influence upon the world. I would say with the exception of Charles I, Charles II, and James II. Sadly, you know, Charles III may be carrying on something of the legacy of Charles I and Charles II, and we lost count of how many illegitimate children they bore in the uh, 1680s and 1690s. But... Uh, but in 1936, King Edward VIII, that would have been Elizabeth's uncle, forfeited the crown because he married a divorced woman. Now, think about how things have changed since 1936. If he had somehow forfeited the crown because he insisted upon marrying a divorced woman, he himself not divorced, but marrying a divorced woman, that apparently disqualified him as, as the King of England. And yet King Charles III himself has committed adultery and, I believe, married a divorced woman in his current wife after Princess yeah. Diana died. Yeah, that's precisely what happened. Uh huh. So you've got King Edward VIII, Elizabeth's uncle, engaged in something of a scandal in the 1930s, and then Elizabeth's sister, Princess Margaret, fell in love with a married man. That was somewhat scandalous. Then he got divorced from another man later on. Prince Charles, as you said, was unfaithful to Diana. Involved with a married woman, so, you know, got involved in what we'd call a death penalty crime, a fairly serious situation. I would say Prince Charles engaged in, you know, crossed the line into a, a gross immorality unlike anybody in centuries, and uh, and it was a very public scandal at that, which would probably disqualify him as a, a king, uh, to, to be anything of a king. Uh, over a period of a thousand years in English history, or, you know, give or take. There, there certainly were some exceptions. Think about uh, the uh, William the Conqueror and some of his uh, awful descendants, King John, others. There, uh, you know, there hasn't been a, a clear record for that length of time. And yet, uh, what we've seen in just the last 40 to 50 years has been a, a moral unraveling that has occurred in England, and it's affected the entire Western world. 
So Prince Charles unfaithful, Elizabeth's daughter, Princess Anna, got divorced. Elizabeth's son, Andrew, divorced in 1996. Andrew is in trouble for his sexual sin associated with Jeffrey Epstein, as you know. Uh, Prince Andrew was stripped of his royal patronage and military titles, and now he will defend himself from sexual assault allegations as a private citizen instead of a royal. So, again, these are multiple scandals that have affected the crown, Elizabeth's children. And that leaves the monarchy to Charles for now. Prince William, who is next for the throne, recently spoke to Albert Kennedy's Trust Fund, a charity dedicated to helping young people make uh, made homeless due to their sexual orientation. William was asked what he would do if one of his children came out of the closet and declared themselves to be homosexual. And he replied, again, this is Prince William, Charles' son, you really don't start thinking about that until you're a parent, I think, obviously, absolutely fine by me. So that was his answer, you know, fine by me if my son turns out to be uh, homosexual. So now it's also interesting. Now, keep in mind that Charles' mentor, okay, we're talking about uh, Charles being mentored in the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s. His mentor was a man of extremely low morals. Louis Montbutton uh, was a very powerful man uh, over the the decades, I'm going to say, in the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s. According to recently uncovered FBI files, he was a homosexual and a pedophile. Uh, same generation of John Maynard Keynes, so pretty much of the same mindset of John Maynard Keynes. Mountbatten was a uh, strong influence in the upbringing of his grandnephew, King Charles III, and later as a mentor. He's referred to as honorary grandfather. The grandfather I never had is the way that Charles put it. So again, these are the influences on Charles, and I think he lived that out as well. Meghan Markle as well, pro-abortion. The queen was opposed to homosexual marriage herself. Then she went ahead and gave approval to it in 2013. And uh, a cousin of Queen Elizabeth, Lord Ivor Montbotton, came out as homosexual in 2016. So so this, this would be something of the legacy of the monarchy uh, over the, say, the last 50, 60 years. Well, to be clear, you didn't mention Louis Monbotton's sins. He was, according to recently uncovered FBI files, a homosexual and a pedophile. This is the mentor to King Charles III. Yes, yes, precisely. So, so all of this, something of a concern. And so, you know, not a surprise that we see a moral unraveling occurring generation by generation, and yet... Uh, kudos to the queen herself in that sh- she had a, a something of a personal faith, a strong faith that uh, seemed to continue to exhibit itself right through Christmas of 2021. You remember, she would continue to to recognize Jesus Christ. And let me say this, that very few politicians have done that through the centuries. Uh, her willingness to stand up and acknowledge her faith in Jesus Christ is, I think, admirable. And uh, she did that consistently over a period of, what, 70 years of her reign. It is admirable. And uh, it's just sad that Prince Charles, now King Charles III, was not properly mentored by his own mother. What about the influence of his father? What do we know about him? Well, it's hard to say. Uh, you just don't get much data on uh, on Prince Philip. Uh, you know, he did, he did himself pass away. I think it was just last year, if I'm not mistaken. But... Uh, King Charles will have a distinctively liberal perspective. Uh, He dedicated his life to the destructive policies of environmentalism. You remember all the way back into the 1950s, 
He was speaking on pollution, plastic, overpopulation. He acknowledges that. That was his position, always has been his position. He spoke at COP21, COP26, the 2021 G20 meeting in Rome, as well as the 2020 World Economic Forum, always, always, always seeking to press ahead his, uh, his environmental cause. And as we just discovered in a recent interview I did with Dr. Calvin Beisner while you were in Brazil, who speaks to the issue of creation from a biblical perspective, the environmentalists hate humans because they hate God and humans are created in God's image. So there is an entire underlying anti-Christian worldview to all of the environmental activism today, including much of what King Charles III advocates. Well, friends, uh, we need to wrap this up, but uh, just you know, a couple of things. One is I believe that the church needs to continue to provide the gospel for refugees from a burned-out culture. That, that we do not have the, the institutional influence upon the universities and educational programs and the political systems of our world as uh, Christian influence has has borne out for the period of, uh, say, a thousand years of Western history doesn't mean that we aren't engaged. We aren't discipling the nations being now smaller nations, our own families, our little communities. Uh, we want to be sure that the gospel message is available to the refugees who are coming out of this burned out culture in which the family has been decimated and morality is at the lowest ebb it's been in, say, a thousand years of world history. Uh, democracy also not necessarily the solution. I think we need to be cautious. It's interesting that the monarchy turned out to be uh, something of the conservative element of Western civilization. Not so much the democracy, but the monarchy uh, has maintained something, a conservatism in terms of morality. And, uh, and, and so let's be careful. There's, there's corruption in democracy. There has been corruption in monarchy. The people are not the compendium of all wisdom, yet a balance of powers has always been helpful. Uh, but, uh, but friends, I think we need to continue to uh, press the need for the decentralization of control of education, given that the public schools have been a means by which society has been corrupted and continues to corrupt. And I would include the universities in that. So if you go to the root of all of this, what is it that corrupts? tends to be the universities all the way back to, say, the university experience of John Maynard Keynes and others in the early 1900s. It seemed to be the college scene that would be the, the primary means of corrupting the morality and the theology and the worldview of our, our systems today. A nationwide revival, I think, is the only hope for any nation, including our own. There may be hope for nations like Brazil or Zambia or Hungary, where there's still some respect for the Christian faith. And they seem to be more interested in what we have to say as, as those who still hold on to something of a remnant of a biblical worldview. I find that there's much more openness in places like Brazil and Zambia than what you would find in the United States. Or you think of the Bahamas, in which you know I've been welcomed by the Department of Education in the Bahamas. You know, Think about me being welcomed by a Department of Education of a nation somewhere in the world. Well, I have in certain <laughs> nations around the world. There's more hope for some of these uh, second world, up-and-coming nations, third world nations than there are for the old burned-out Western countries. But whatever the case, what we need is a nationwide revival for our nation and other nations around the world. Pray for it. Elizabeth II. And, of course, Victoria will remain as icons of common grace, 
sustaining a civilization for 70 plus 64 years, 64 for Victoria and 70 for Elizabeth II. And that's a period of 134 years where, by God's grace, there's been something of a sustenance of civilization because of these leaders. Uh, While men like Charles Darwin, Jeremy Bentham, Karl Marx, and others dedicated themselves to the ruin of Western civilization, there still was something of a remnant of common grace that held it all together. Praise God for His mercy, which endures forever. And yet we have seen God's common grace through these leaders and by the very fact that He sends rain upon the just and the unjust everywhere around the world every day. And we're so thankful for God's mercy upon the nations. And that, I believe, is the message to take from the life and the death of Elizabeth II. Friends, you've been listening to Generations. My name is Kevin Swanson. Adam McManus, my co-host on this edition of the program. Please tune in next time as we continue to lay down a vision for the next generation.